We're going to talk about the road to resurrection tonight. Now, I have a confession to make about uh, myself, and I could be projecting this on you. So if you think so afterwards, you're welcome to tell me. But um, I'm terrible at holidays. They just generally don't register with me. Uh, I, I'm pretty good about Vicky's birthday because she's uh, she was born on the 13th of January. And... When we were living in Oregon, uh, her sister was living with us, her younger sister, and we forgot her birthday, both her sister and her husband. The reason that that hasn't happened since then is we inaugurated a plan called the 13 Days of Vicky, and she gets a present of some sort January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd, and it's hard to forget that once you got the momentum going. So... Normally when I tell that story, I tell it to look good. I'm telling it to you to realize how disconnected from holidays I can get. So anyway, uh, especially because just the way I think theologically and the way I try to listen to the Lord on stuff, and I'm always into kind of a, the current topic, Easter is one of those holidays that I don't usually think about. And especially since we don't meet on Sundays, the time we've been meeting on Saturdays or Fridays, it's been kind of weird. And, uh, and there's a lot going on around Easter. There's a lot going on around Passover. So anyway, this year, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and, and wants us to be a little bit more conscious of it, more plugged in. Now that, again, that's why I could just be projecting, because I am. But uh, so the dates that we're, that we're looking at here are, uh, today's the 19th. I was trying to find some significant day that this represented in, in uh, anybody's calendar, really. And uh, it isn't, doesn't. But we're two weeks out from Easter, basically two weeks and two days. We're two weeks out from uh, Passover. I mean, one week out from Passover beginning. So I started seeking kind of, you know, Lord, what, what is it that we can talk about? What is it that, that we can steer our hearts back toward this from? And it was interesting what I found, because there's uh, just a few passages of Scripture we're going to go through. But the road to, to resurrection includes jealousy and prophecy and healing and friendship. And so if, if tonight is successful from a message standpoint, you will be thinking about these next two weeks with your heart on what Jesus was going through and what he was facing. But it was more than just the rigors of the cross. Uh, there's a couple of things I'm just going to allude to, but I'm not going to concentrate on tonight. One of them was one of, the, was one of the weirdest reactions that I could even imagine. Jesus, at one point in one of the Gospels, in the, in the last couple of weeks before he's heading to, to Jerusalem, he explains why they're going to Jerusalem. And he says, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be killed. But then I'm going to, uh, then I'm going to uh, rise again. Now, that seemed like a pretty amazing revelation to me if I had been a group of disciples. And I don't know if you know, if you remember in one of the tellings of that, what happened next, but uh, John and James, I think, said, uh, hey, would you do something for us? <laughs> and, and they said, when you get into your kingdom, we'd like to sit at your right hand and your left hand. And I... I'd never really thought of the non sequitur that was until I was trying to figure out what was going on in that two or three weeks before Jesus was 
going to be crucified. So that was one of the, the bizarre ones. And then another thing I found that was pretty interesting, and it, it almost felt like I, if, if I shared it, it would be manipulative, but one of the major conversations that Jesus had about childness was, was in that, because it was in the same time where they're turning and heading towards Jerusalem that they started arguing about who was going to be greater. And it followed on the heels of Jesus announcing that he's going to go and some man's going to be uh, you know, arrested and so on. And so this thing that we've been focusing on is something that actually came up in part of the conversation with the disciples and part of that ministry leading up to it. And then, of course, after this kind of period of time that we're facing a couple of weeks out, is uh, there's the triumphal entry uh, celebrated by Palm Sunday. But really, if you read that, we're going to look at that next week, uh, you talk about a mob turnaround from just a few days. The whole crowd is going, Hosanna, Hosanna, is the one that comes in the name of the Lord, and they're all going crazy. Then behind the scenes, not so covertly, you have the, the Pharisees plotting finally just to kill him. And uh, so there's just an amazing amount of stuff going on. So this is kind of the, uh, the, the, the first couple of weeks. And, and I just highlighted a few of these things. So I've got, I've got some scriptures isolated out here, and we'll take a look. Here's the first one. This is in John 11. Uh, breaking in doesn't make much sense when you start like where I did, but some of them went away. This is immediately following raising Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus is in Bethany, and remember he took a while to come, Lazarus was dead four days, et cetera, et cetera. But he raises Lazarus from dead, and, and it says, the verse just preceding this, says that many of the, the Jews in Judea that knew uh, Lazarus and knew Mary and were there began to believe in him. And then that's what leads up to this but. So here's the, the way this one starts. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And again, that was raising Lazarus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. And they said, what do we do now that this man is performing many signs? If we allow him to continue thus, everyone will have faith in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our holy place and our nation. Now, I just think it's as bad as the disciples' reaction was when he described, I'm going to go be arrested and beaten and killed, and then I'm going to rise again. Oh, can we, you know? And then one of the other stories is about when their mom went in and, and interceded. That was hard to believe. But somebody comes to you and says, this well-known guy died, was dead for four days, and, and Jesus raised him from the dead. And your reaction is, how do we let this keep going on? We're going to lose our job. We're going, to lo- <laughs> We're going to lose our influence, our authority. There's a disconnect going on in humanity surrounding this period of time. And I thought it was fascinating, but this isn't even the end. This isn't even the end. So that's, this is the part I'm calling jealousy. If we allow him to continue thus, everyone will have faith in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our holy place and our nation. Now, interestingly enough, the Romans did that anyway. Seventy years forward, they're gone. No more temple. The priesthood was dissolved for all practical purposes. And so it's not like their fear wasn't rooted in some sort of reality, probably. But, but, and and I'm not, I don't have a lot of conclusions to give you tonight. I just want us to immerse ourselves in in, in the, the sort of cultural magnitude of what was going on leading up to the cross. So immediately following these verses is a, a really cool story that I didn't notice something about before. 
So the next verse says, But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was that year's chief priest, said to them, You know nothing. Now, he said, you know nothing in response to this. That proved to be false. But you do not realize that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Yet he did not say this from himself, but being that year's chief priest, he was prophesying that Jesus was about to die for the nation. And then the commentator Uh, John, in this case, goes on and says, not only for the nation, but also that he might gather the scattered children of God into one. And then from that day, therefore, they took counsel so that they might kill him. Well, look look at what this says and think about it with me. And like I say, I don't have a lot of conclusions, but there's some interesting stuff to think about and kind of maybe speculate a little bit beforehand. Yet he did not say this from himself. But being that year's chief priest, he was prophesying that Jesus was about to die for the nation, not only for the nation, but also that he might gather the scattered children of God into one. First of all, that's super beautiful. There's a prophetic revelation through a hostile party that he doesn't even really know he's prophesying. But The scripture says he was prophesying. Okay? Here's what I see significant about that that I want you to think about. This is a passage in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. And it says, Knowing this before all else, that no prophecy of scripture comes from a private interpretation. For at no time was any prophecy produced by a human being's will. Rather, human beings spoke from God when they were born along by the Holy Spirit. All right. I, we're all really familiar with prophecy lately. There's a lot of it going on. And, and, and I, don't, I don't have a particular equation or parallel to create that way, but it made me realize and think about that when John commenting on what Caiaphas said, even though Caiaphas didn't say it to be a prophecy, he didn't intend it to be, he was prophesying. And that meant that there were two driving realities. There were two persons engaged in what Caiaphas said that doesn't seem obvious when you first look at it. But Peter said that no time was any prophecy produced by a human being's will, meaning that prophecy was not produced by Caiaphas's will. But rather, Caiaphas spoke from God when he was born along by the Holy Spirit. All right, so now as weird as that sounds, plugging it into this time, I started thinking about it, and this is kind of what I want to suggest that you ponder a little bit. I can't imagine... Okay, so Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and his disciples were tuned in to, well, is this a, a good time for us to ask for honor in, in, in your kingdom, you know? I thought that was weird. And then the reaction of the priest beforehand, he raised a guy from the dead. They'd been dead for four days, and everybody was there celebrating his passing, funeral, you know, mourning his passing. Oh, man, we can't let this go on. 
But here we get to see how someone else felt about all this that was coming up. We get to see how God felt about it. How the Holy Spirit felt about it. Now, if I had been... I mean, I was was sitting there thinking and talking to God about this. Father, if I had been you, knowing what was coming for my son, I would not have taken the occasion to move by my spirit on an enemy of my son to proclaim this beautiful thing that Jesus was about to die for the nation and not only the nation, but that he might also gather my scattered children from abroad. I looked ahead and I thought, you could foresee, Lord, that center, or that uh, Roman guard standing at the base of the cross going, surely this was the Son of God. You could look, as, look ahead and you could see the, the Syrophoenician woman having faith. You could look ahead and you could see Cornelius and his household being filled with the very same spirit that moved on Caiaphas. Apparently, if we believe what the Scripture says in Peter, that nobody's done it except by these two means. What does that say about the attitude of the father two weeks before his son is going to face the betrayal, the arrest, the death? I don't know. I don't know what it says, but it feels special. You know what I mean? It feels like this wasn't a vengeance thing that was coming. You know, and I I think most of us in here have pretty much given up on that as the motive behind the cross that the father was, you know, going to take out vengeance on his son for our behalf or something like that. There's more to it. There's something serious here about redemption, something wonderful about the heart of the father being revealed, that he would take sort of the centerpiece of the plot against the life of Jesus. The person who was staring God in the face and was in charge of the spiritual life of the community and the nation. And he was willing to... uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I'm stunned by it. I'm stunned by the fact. So people say, well, what was the Holy Spirit doing? Well, the Holy Spirit was sowing into, out of the mouth of Caiaphas, the the prophetic knowledge that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And I ask... If they had had a different heart, if some of those other priests, after he sort of mockingly said, you don't know anything, don't you realize? Was there some of those guys that could have heard and could have sensed? And I think, yeah. And I, I think, I think how many, how many did? After, after Jesus died, after he rose again, after they tried to cover it up with the story about the body being stolen, How many of the ones that heard that prophecy, it lingered in their heart and in their spirit? And were they ones that eventually came to know who he was? I don't know, but I've never seen that in there. I mean, I've seen seen it saying that, but I just always thought, oh, yeah, God was honoring that old covenant and doing this and doing that. Anyway, I think it's pretty cool. It's not the only incident like this either. So I just wanted you to know kind of where this is going on. So that... uh, red thing there is Bethany. Jerusalem is just to the left of it. And so in this last two or three week period, 
there's a passage that says in Jesus, so, so after this goes on, after the, uh, they, they realize he raised Lazarus from the dead, and they start making an aggressive plot to kill Jesus, he has to leave the area, and he goes up to that place, Ephraim. And it's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, but that's the road you have to take. You can see there's some around there. Now, it's possible, I suppose, on one of the trips, uh, or the trip up there, he went up through Bethel and over. But there's no question about the rest of the narrative of the last couple of weeks before uh, Passover and before the crucifixion, that he came down back around through Jericho and that Cyprus area. And Jericho is located right over there. So if that's 20 miles north of Jerusalem, it's about maybe 15 miles from Ephraim to Jericho and 15 miles back to Bethany. So th- this is where some other cool stuff happened. And here's, here's the story there. Healing. They came into Jericho, and as he was departing from Jericho along with his disciples in a considerable crowd... A blind beggar. So he had come back from Ephraim making his way down. And there's some more stuff there. If you go into the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of parables that were being taught toward the end and that kind of stuff. Uh, And then as he gets down into Bethany, closer to uh, Jerusalem is when John chapter 13 and 14 and those things come into play. But, and they come into Jericho, and as he was departing from Jericho along with his disciple in a considerable crowd, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, sat beside the road. And hearing that it is Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And many persons admonished him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And coming to a standstill, Jesus said, Call to him. And they called to the blind man, saying, Take heart, arise, he calls for you. So throwing off his mantle and springing up, he came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you wish that I might do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he saw again and followed him upon the road. Now, Jesus healed a lot of people. And there are a lot of stories about that healing. But this one came on the way back to Jerusalem to be arrested and to die. Now, there's another super interesting thing about this. And to me, it's super interesting. Because things like this are super interesting to me. In the telling of this story outside of Jericho on the way back to Jerusalem, in the Gospel of Matthew, it has two blind men. And it doesn't mention Bartimaeus' name. Now, there was a time in my theology as a young Bible student and pastor where that troubled me greatly because I didn't know which was right. I don't feel too tripped out by that anymore. Hey, Sonny. Um, What I do realize is that by taking a look at this really sort of compressed, intense time leading up to the the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's room in there for a lot of stuff that he felt was important. And and the only thing I'm, I'm extrapolating from the fact that in the Matthew story there's two, and here... The details are that there's one, similar to the demoniac of Gadara. Uh, in one of the tellings, it's a very specific story with a lot of details about one, and in another, it says there were two. It's talking about the same trip, it appears. Anyway, like I say, I don't understand that and don't encourage you to get tripped up over it, but it feels like 
there's room in this story for more than just blind Bartimaeus to get healed. And I honestly thought, you know, you know like two weeks ago we had a, an elders meeting and one of the beautiful things that came out of it was that we need to make room for healing. We need to make that a regular part of our, our lives again and that I've kind of uh, gotten busy theologically thinking and haven't necessarily made all that kind of room, and it's true. And so I was just reading this, and I go, wow, Lord, you made room. Even in telling the story through the various gospel people, you made room. Because we can't just write this off that it was Bartimaeus, and that was a unique story, and that's just got the point. Because it's told over in Matthew, there's two. And again, Jesus is making his way back to crucifixion, and there's room to touch this guy and let him follow. Let him see. Let him come along. And so I'm going, I want to, you know, I felt like the Lord was just reinforcing what we decided. That, that as we face Easter, maybe this is probably the biggest of the reasons that I wanted to walk through this, this timing about the season that we're in. What a God. What a Savior. What a prescience. What a, what a focus of attention. And like I say, I don't have time to go into it. the other Gospels where he's, he's, a lot of the parables, he's talking about that, and he's teaching, showing people. Uh, the 90 and 9 comes at this time in that series, if you look at it. Uh, the heart of Jesus, as he was headed to Jerusalem to die, was eyes wide open, heart wide open. Call him here. Call him here. The, uh, I told you, you know, that one of the encounters that Jesus had where he talked about childness, it was the one recorded uh, late in Matthew where the disciples irritated him by trying to keep the kids away. And I read one of the translations, and after he had pushed back on that, it says he enfolded them in, their arm, in his arms, and he blessed them. It didn't just say he set them in a minute. He enfolded the, the kids in his arms, the little children. And so... I don't know whether I projected on Jesus my whole life sort of a, a flint-headed uh, determination to go, but I don't think that's the right image. No matter how serious this issue is, no matter how desperate this last journey is from Ephraim back to Jerusalem, he was there to die for the nation. He was there to gather God scattered children. He was there to heal. So the, the Caiaphas thing, this is just subjective totally. Kind of like Chris Carter was a few weeks ago, letting you know on some stuff. So when I saw that thing about Caiaphas prophesying, I couldn't help uh, but, but dialogue with the Lord a little bit. It was in my journaling. And I said, Lord, did, did he recognize you? And Because I was thinking, I know that he hung in there in, in his hostility through the the week of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and all this kind of stuff. But I go, did he recognize you? And I felt like the Lord said, he does. He does. And that changed the whole timing of the thing for me. You know, the whole timing. Now, I don't know that. I don't know that. I'm not actually a doctrine. But uh, you got one man at this crucial time who really initiates the beginning of the end the plotting against Jesus to kill him. And, the, and, and you have the Father and the Spirit motivating a prophetic word to clarify what it was about. 
And I just, I just have this picture of that finally dawning on him and, you know, wonder how that came down. Anyway, it's a different thought. But uh, does that make any sense, the idea that healing didn't just come as a part of atonement? It didn't just come as a part of the gospel. It actually was acted out right there while they were trudging along on the dirt road from Jericho to Bethany to Jerusalem to the tomb. I think it's amazing. So we have every permission to seek it now as we are approaching Passover, as we're approaching Easter, and quite honestly, every day beyond that. All right, so here's a different one. So just envision that, that uh, after the raising of John, I mean, uh, the raising of Lazarus, things got hot around there, and there was an overt plot to try to kill Jesus. So Jesus, it says, Scripture says he couldn't stay there anymore. So that's when he went up to Ephraim. And he hung out at Ephraim for not 100% sure how wide. You know, it could be several weeks or a few weeks. I don't know uh, exactly. But we get down here, and there's kind of a firm date attached. So six days before Passover. So we're like within a couple of days of that timeline right here. Six days before Passover. Because Passover starts, I think, on the 27th, the evening of the 27th. And um, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So he's now made that loop that I showed you on the map down through, through Jericho, back to Bethany again. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they prepared a supper for him, and Martha served. Now, think about the story of the raising of Lazarus, and think about what Martha's role in that was. And, you know, I, I have preached critical sermons of her not choosing the better way to sit at Jesus' feet and serve. So obviously what went on the few weeks before when her brother was raised from the dead and the, uh, the, 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 the serving thing, you know, Martha's still Martha. But it's okay. It's okay. It's not stopping anything. As a matter of fact, it's being honored. And Mary... Mary's still Mary. So Mary, taking a pint of unguent of pure nard, which was very expensive, anointed the feet of Jesus, and with her hair she wiped his feet off, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the unguent. So she's still worshiping it at his feet. Jesus comes back. Where does he come? He comes to his friends. Now I'm going to have to, I didn't put this on the PowerPoint because I didn't know if I wanted to go there, but I do. So I'm going to just open it up and read it to you, the next few verses. But the idea, in this compressed time, when Jesus is now making the turn to fulfill the, the intentions of the cross. Now, we in, and for so much of my life, I thought the intentions of the cross are to die. The intentions of the cross. Okay, yes, yes, yes. That was all necessary. But... God took time to prophesy in the middle of this. The intentions of the cross is to die for the nation of Israel and gather the scattered children of the Lord. It's an affection. It's a devotion. It's not just a, a mechanical fixing of the fall. There's a relational thing going on here, and it's culminated in this. When Jesus gets back down just before 
just before it's time. And we're going to see it even stronger next week. Uh, God willing that we can share about, about the stuff that went on at the upper room, the stuff that went on at the Passover, the stuff that went on with the foot washing. I mean, if you remember, uh, John 13 starts with something like, and Jesus, realizing that his time has come and he was going to return to the Father, loved his disciples, and he loved them until the end. This is like a love journey. It wasn't a death march. And I've never thought of it that way. I was so fixed on the cross. I never understood. And, and, and even when I would read in Hebrews, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Again, it was the same thing. I only saw him peeking out of bruised and swollen eyes to get a glimpse of the joy. But now I see when he turned the corner and came up over the hill and could see Lazarus's house, Mary's house, Martha's house, tidy because Martha kept it up. <laughs> that was the joy he had before. When, when he heard uh, Bartimaeus hollering his name, have mercy on me, call him over. That was the joy. His joy didn't start at the cross. It didn't start when he was able to say it was finished. It was here. And Jesus said, I, you know, I only do what I do the Father. This, this is not just my works, it's the Father working. I don't fully understand how this interaction worked during the midst of the incarnation, but I know how it would work now because they're one. But that declaration, that declarative prophecy that Caiaphas was given the privilege to speak in spite of his enemy status and hatred. Jesus probably had a role in that revelation. Certainly he knew it was happening. Certainly he knew the Father was speaking and doing. Certainly he knew that the Spirit was wrapping up. That's probably pretty close to the last prophecy of the Old Covenant. <laughs> probably. Wow. Wow. Kind of makes... Uh, Balaam and the donkey seem tame. <laughs> so anyway, I just it, it, it's changed the way I'm looking and approaching the season. Uh, let me let me go go here and and share this last little bit with you that I should have probably put on the PowerPoint. So uh, chapter twelve. Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus raised from the dead. Now, now, and there's that too. How about that? Jesus comes back to have a family celebration time with some of his closest friends, one of whom he raised from the dead. And it... it, it well, anyway, let me read it. Um, and Lazarus was one of the ones reclining at the table. So Mary, taking a pint of unguent of pure nard, which was very expensive, anointed the feet of Jesus, and with her hair she wiped her feet off, and the house was filled with the fragrance of unguent. Now, if on the road from Ephraim through Jericho to Bethany, Jesus had been carrying any resentment for John and James's reaction about, hey, now that you've told us that you're going to go die, can we sit uh, on your right hand or your left? If he, and I don't think he was. I don't think he's a grudge carrier. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. But if he had had any, if, if that was the last thing registering a bad taste in his mouth, here comes this. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, says, 
Why was this unguent not sold for 300 denarii and that donated to the destitute? But he said this not because he was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief. And being a keeper of the purse, he drew on what was deposited in it. Again, look at, look at the depth and the breadth of what's going on in the last two weeks as Jesus is facing this thing that was serious enough to him that he said, Father, if there's a way this can pass away, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, but he said this not because he was concerned for the poor, but because he was a thief. And being keeper of the purse, drew on what was deposited in it. Jesus therefore said, Leave her, so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but me you do not always have. So a large crowd of the Judeans knew that he was there, and they came, not only on account of Jesus, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And then we circle all the way back to the beginning of the story of this last few weeks and the trip up to Ephraim and down to Jericho and down to Bethany. And it says, and the chief priests conspired so they might kill Lazarus also. Because on his account, many of the Judeans were going over to Jesus and having faith in him. The next passage starts uh, what follows in a few days, and that's the triumphal entry, so I'm going to stop there. But um, I don't know why this feels so wonderful to me. It feels like God gave us an insight into the mindset of Jesus as he was approaching the last days of his life. And I feel like if I can think on this, if I can just meditate on it a little bit, I feel like I can understand more about what Jesus was saying in John 14 or John 15. Or I can, I can take f- at a greater face value, a greater depth, when it says, and realizing that he was going to go back, the time was coming that he was going to go back to his father, he loved his disciples, and he loved them to the end. And I feel like it can even add, add something more emotional, more organic and more affectionate to Jesus hanging on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Because the stuff he put up with just in this trip and the openness that he displayed to the blind guy, that's a natural statement for that kind of a heart. That was something natural, not a foreign thing, not a forced thing. So anyway, I just wanted us to, well, this is my effort to try to be obedient and pay attention to Easter. (laughs) And I feel like I've personally got a great reward out of just thinking about it. Because uh, in the middle of whatever mechanical and atoning work was going on, was a great, great heart of our Lord and Savior. A great love for people. And a great knowledge that this wasn't just for the immediate activities, it wasn't just for that nation at that time, but that he was going to gather the lost children of God, of whom we are. Yeah, Ronnie. So um, you said a couple words. It really struck me out of all that. (laughs) I did say a couple words. Yeah. You said Jesus was thinking this on the last days of his life. 
And it hit me as that that wasn't the last. That's day true. Of his That's life. true. Yeah, yeah. No, in the least. Yeah, it yeah. was just in the middle of the process of what he knew needed to be done. Yeah, his last days before his experience of death probably would have been a better way to say that. But you're right. But he yeah. also was looking forward to being back with the father in a different way. Yeah. So there's there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of it being the last days of his life is more how I might have thought of things in the past as this is yeah. done. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's not. That's right. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I, just what you just said made me think that as we get a little closer, you know, we get into the arrest, the dialogue that I'm expecting to feel between Jesus and Pilate, for instance, there's a lot more of him in that dialogue than I think I've looked at in the past. Yeah. So, any other thoughts before we got one, Jeremy? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking. Uh, I had about the religious leaders of those times. You know, it always seemed to be the group that came after Jesus, and he had the the conflict with. Um, seems like I need to really redefine who I see as enemies <laughs> and, and really hold, hold that, uh, hold that sort of def, uh, that sort of accusation about enemy very, you think, think through that really carefully before acting on that future. So. Observation. Yeah. That's a great observation. Wow. Well, that's good. Well, something that I do want to do. And, uh, like I said, a couple weeks ago, we had a, uh, an elders meeting and committed ourselves to making room for healing. And we're going to obviously move back into worship here real shortly. But before we do that, I want to know if there is anybody here who would cry out to Jesus. And you could say, like Bartimaeus did, Son of David, uh, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. But we could also say, Word of the Father, Jesus, King of kings, risen one, have mercy on me. 